Manner of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 56, September 2022. Sounds Appealing, a conversation with David Crystal. Hi, Paul Mai here. It's been a busy time. It's textbook time for conservatories and university theatre departments, and my accents and dialects for stage and screen is used throughout the English-speaking world in actor training programmes. If you would like to review the book for use at your university, you can find a perusal copy at my Information for Instructors. You'll find that under the About tab on the menu bar at palmai.com. A quick reminder, you're probably listening to this podcast on your favourite podcast channel or index, so you might miss the free extra content related to this episode that lives only on palmai.com. So go there, choose In a Manner of Speaking from the Other Services tab on the menu bar, and click on the episode of your choice. Easy. First up, guess that accent. Last time I played this clip from the International Dialects of English Archive idea and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. Well, here's a story for you. Sarah Perry was a veterinary nurse who had been working daily at an old zoo in a deserted district of the territory. So she was very happy to start a new job at a superb private practice in North Square near the Duke Street Tower. So what do you think? If you guessed Jamaica, very well done. It was Ideas Jamaica 2, contributed by Tanner Marshall, our senior editor-at-large. Thanks again, Tanner. The subject was born and raised in Mandeville. Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. For the whole recording and a transcription of it, go to the Dialects and Accents tab on the menu bar of dialectsarchive.com and choose Jamaica from the Caribbean tab. Now, here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend his formative years? If it was not for her, I would have been incomplete. I am blessed. I became a Baptist minister and I preached the ministry of reconciliation because we all desire a second chance. Get the answer next time. Speaking of idea, we've recently been exploring ways to add even more cultural and linguistic value to the website. So we've been placing renewed emphasis on subjects' discussion of their culture, place of birth, ethnicity and unique traditions. We hope to make idea even more indispensable. You might notice some new splashes of colour in the form of continent and region maps. Further, we're now asking speakers whose first language is other than English to conclude their unscripted speech with a bit of their L1, first language, either additional impromptu speech or a short reading of a poem or another literary snippet in their first language. Of course, we'll always be the International Dialects of English archive. That will always be our focus. But by including this L1 speech, theoretically we're doubling ideas' usefulness, as the site becomes an archive of not just English language accents, but native dialects of other languages. So, if you're listening to this podcast and have always been tempted to submit your own voice to idea, there's never been a better time than now. My guest this month is my old friend, David Crystal. This will be David's fourth visit with me since I started the podcast five years ago. He joined me for episode number five on pragmatics, number 22 on history of received pronunciation, and number 44 on Let's Talk, his great book about conversation analysis. 
So, clearly, David has become a regular here. We're already talking to him about coming back in 2023 to take us through the history of English pronunciation from the very earliest days. Today I'm talking to David about his great 2018 book, Sounds Appealing, The Passionate Story of English Pronunciation, one of the best accounts of spoken English I've ever come across. Loved the book. I can't believe you waited till comparatively recently to write such a wide-ranging, very entertaining, very readable book, Sounds Appealing. It's a tremendous review of so many aspects of spoken English. I've almost lost count of the number of books you've written. Number 120, perhaps? Why did you wait, David, until 2018 to write it? Well, Paul, because it's hard. You know, I'm a great believer in doing the easier jobs first. And the thing about grammar and vocabulary is that you don't have to worry about things like transcription, you know, how to describe it. You just write about the stuff and the terminology and try to explain it as best you can. But as you well know, I mean, trying to write down the sounds in a book is the yes. devil of the job. Yes, it is. Um, and I put it off and put it off and put it off. I mean, I had written on intonation and so on before, but that's easier in a way because at least you can show pitch going up and down in some sort of visual way. But when it comes to talking about plosives and fricatives and all the rest of it with only print available, it's difficult. And so I put it off. You make it sound so easy, it comes right off the page. It's it's a non-specialist book. It's a, a fabulous book for anyone who's interested in, in speech or language. And uh, it's a fabulous addition to the Crystal Canon. Well, I'm, I'm glad you, you found it so, Paul. You know, of all the, the books I've written in recent times, at any rate, in this particular series, you know, this, these are all books, last four or five here that this is part of was a series for profile books and it started off with vocabulary and then went on to grammar and so on and um pronunciation it, it had to be there after yes. what was it uh, vocabulary grammar punctuation and uh, spelling yes. so you know the big gap was pronunciation it had to be there right. and so i had no alternative really and I thought the best way into it is going to be to try and make it as demotic as possible. I think most of the time uh, was spent trying to find really good down-to-earth examples, not the sort that you often get in the textbooks, which give you some rather abstruse examples, illustrations yeah. of particular sounds, you know, cartoon characters and things like that, ones that I thought people would recognize if only from their television or film experience and I thought that might help but it took a long time to uh, find those examples that yes. seemed to remember was the main thing they're terrific they're terrific and uh, very very readable yeah I think I think it's probably the first um, uh, book on pronunciation that, where you will find uh, you, you know Robin Hood next to Willy Wonka next to um, the Daleks and Doctor Who and yes. yeah and, and and all of that uh, to it in order to illustrate points of phonetic contrast. It's not just about phonetics, uh, which is wonderful, but it is so wide ranging. We're going. I'm going to take you through. I'll get you to comment on just some of the topics that you cover. In sounds appealing. Let's start with phonetics since you brought it up. A fairly recent science, and for some of our listeners, maybe sort of vague on what phonetics is, or is that phonetics are? I don't never quite sure about that. <laughs> and they've encountered it in dictionaries and so forth. Um, but give us a quick and dirty 
crystal version of what phonetics are good for? Well, for me, phonetics is is very simply the science of human sound making. You know, how do we make sounds? And then having made them, what happens to them? And so they go through the air and hit somebody else in the ear. And so there are these three sides to phonetics, the, the production side, the transmission side, and the reception side. And the beauty of phonetics for me is its general character in the sense that all human beings are born, unless there's some problem, of course, with the same articulatory apparatus, the same auditory apparatus, and presumably the same brains, insofar as we know. And yet, out of this basic set of properties comes the six or 7,000 languages in the world with all their different sound systems. Yes. And that's the fascination. How on earth do you get from this single basic set of abilities and properties to the diversity of the world's languages. And that means, of course, studying language acquisition as well to see how the kids do it, because that, of course, is uh, one of the best ways into any aspect of language is to see how children cope with it. Yes, I've, I've got an interview set up uh, for later in this year with Jenny Safran, language acquisition person. So that'll be great. Yeah, I talked with Edda Sharp and uh, Jan Hayden Rose a few episodes ago about My Fair Lady and and the phoneticians that Shaw loosely based Pygmalion on. And you have a chapter on three early phoneticians. Tell us about them briefly. Well, you're absolutely right when you say that phonetics is perhaps not as well known as it ought to be. And the reason is that it is a very recent subject. I mean, when you think of the study of, of grammar, and of course, vocabulary, dictionaries and things like that, and even spelling and punctuation, then we're going way, way, way back. And you can track it right back almost to Anglo-Saxon times. But pronunciation has always been the sort of Cinderella of linguistic sciences. And it's not really until the 19th, late 19th century that you get people really trying to study the subject in a scientific kind of way. There were earlier on amateurish dilettante efforts to look at aspects of pronunciation, of course. And in Shakespeare's time, for instance, there were studies of pronunciation, but not in a very scientific kind of way, not in a very systematic, objective kind of way. Who started it all off? Who, who invented the international phonetic alphabet? Who were the first people who really tried to devise a transcription for all the sounds that a human being could possibly make? And that's Paul Passy, second half of the 19th century, although he lived much longer. He lived until the Second World War. He's the, the one that really started things off and taught so many other people that, that were either his pupils or his colleagues. And so then we move on to Henry Sweet, who was a lecturer in phonetics at, at Oxford University. Didn't live so long, died in, I think, 1912, I think. And, of course, the big name of the 20th century, Daniel Jones. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. I remember in drama school learning phonetics and listening to those great big 78 RPM discs where Jones demonstrates the cardinal vowels. That was so wonderfully nerdy and exciting for me. Oh, absolutely. And I had exactly the same experience. Well, you see, I, I've got a personal link with Daniel Jones because when I went to university in the late 1950s, uh, Jones was still alive. And I was taught phonetics by two of his students, A.C. Gimson 
and yes. J.D. O'Connor. I had the privilege of having the IPA proficiency exam administered to me by the great A.C. Gimson. <laughs> ah, he came, ah, he, he well, came down uh, to our drama school and, uh, and administered it in person. And uh, what a thrill. Well, by the time that um, I graduated and got my first job as a research assistant there, it was actually a job linking the phonetics department with the English department. And, uh, you know, as a new found member of staff, I went into the staff common room and there was a big table and around it were all the big phoneticians of that period. You see, Gimson, O'Connor and several others and a more jocular, fun crowd I've never, <laughs> ever met. They were a real gang, you know. And I got to know them so well that when it came to Daniel Jones's Festschrift, they asked me to review it. And so I did. And I treasure now a little spidery postcard from Daniel Jones uh. thanking me for the review of his birthday volume. <laughs> So that's my connection with DJ. And of course, everybody called him DJ. They never called him anything else. Uh -huh. I wouldn't dare. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, I actually. <laughs> yeah, very late science. Um, maybe the jocularity of that gang around the table in the staff room there was because they were embarking on a, a fairly recent science. They hadn't had time to get stuffy, perhaps. Yes, I think that's right. Um, I mean, the recency can be seen in some of the terminology. You know, we talk a lot about speech therapy or speech pathology. Well, why not language therapy and language pathology? I know some people do use that terminology, but at the beginning, it was just speech. Why? Uh, because when speech therapy started, it was at exactly the same time as phonetics developed at the end of the 19th century. And everybody thought that if there was a problem of communication, it was going to be a speech problem only. We now know, yes. of course, more to it than that. And uh, speech therapists were essentially, as it were, applied phoneticians in those early days. And to some extent, they still are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's move to the melody of speech, which is so important. What, what would we lose if we spoke on exactly the same pitch throughout a thought? So how important is is all that uh, up and down well, stuff. Well, it ain't what you say, but the way that you say it, that's the phrase that everybody knows, isn't it? Yes. And indeed, this was this was my first love in the phonetics world. I remember that, yes. I, I, I fell in love with intonation, and not just intonation, but the whole range of the tones of voice, uh, the prosodic features as one would say technically, and the paralinguistic features that one again would say technically. What makes the liveliness of the voice? What makes the character of the voice over and above the content of what's been communicated by the, the vowels and the consonants and the syllables? And my first job, indeed, when I said just a few minutes ago that I was linking the phonetics department and the English department, this was part of the survey of English usage that Randolph Quirk had begun in 1959. This was an, a, a grammatical survey, a survey of English grammar, really, the first one to really look at spoken English rather than written English. Grammars previously had all been based on the written language, hardly any reference to speech at all. Randolph and his colleagues before I joined um, had spent ages collecting speech samples from all over the place, everything from everyday conversation to BBC recordings to sermons to political speeches, the lot, you know, television advertising, all of that. 
And they had a transcript of the words, but they had no way of capturing the melody of it all. Yes. And that is so absolutely crucial. Any variety of English, of spoken English, is as much identified by its melody as by anything else. And so I was employed to develop the transcription, the international transcription for Paul the Survey. And the first thing I discovered was that the intonation system that I'd been taught by Gimson and the others, and, and which anybody listening to this who's learned English as a second language or a foreign language knows from the textbooks, you know, the rising tones and the falling tones and all of these that you learn in order to speak English well, that was only a fraction of the auditory effect that was being conveyed by these prosodic and paralinguistic features. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it's not just pitch movement, it's loudness, it's speed of articulation, it's the rhythm with which you say things, it's the silences, the pauses that come between what you're saying. And these are all called the prosody of speech, the yes. prosodic features of speech. And the reason why they're grouped together is because they are always there. There's always pitch and loudness and speed and pause and rhythm. Can't say mm. anything without those. The other group of features that I'm calling paralinguistic, paralinguistic because para means above and beyond. So it's on these are features on the edge of language. They're not always there. And these are the various tones of voice. So one can, for some reason or other, I might now suddenly start to whisper to you. I'm not going to do that because there's no particular reason to be conspiratorial. But in real life, of course, people do develop a whisper. They speak in a breathy kind of way. They introduce creaky voice of some sort, you know, that kind of thing. They yes. get a bit nasal sometimes. Uh, and there are all sorts of other sporadic features of that kind that actually turn up very commonly in everyday spoken English. So my job was to develop a system of transcription that would map all of these these features. And uh, that's what that's what I did in that first year. And then the book I wrote a few years later called Prosodic Systems and Intonation in English, uh, 1969, that title is crucial. It's Prosodic Systems and Intonation, Intonation mm -hmm. being just one of these general systems. And you have a book, uh, The English Tone of Voice, right? Oh, and The English Tone of Voice came later. Uh, you know, this was my thing in the 1960s. Uh, all newly, newly graduated PhDs and early authors. They, uh, you know, you got to make your name somehow, haven't you? <laughs> you yeah. choose, choose a subject and explore it in real detail. And my subject was indeed the one that we've just talked about. And so slowly papers got written for various conferences like you do, you know, and then eventually there were enough of these to put them all together into a single book. And that was called, as you say, the English tone of voice. I love that one. Which words we emphasize, I guess, is part of that paralinguistic stuff that you're talking about. And I love the part in the book where you talked about uh, a particular obsession of mine, which is seemingly when speakers put stress on the word in the sentence that least deserves it. And you gave two examples that I loved that you heard on the radio. The rain will spread into Scotland by tomorrow morning and 
That was Symphony Number no. Five by Gustav Mahler. <laughs> so, <laughs> what's so damn attractive about this preposition? Oh well, you know, I used to do a lot of radio work once upon a time, and I still remember the very first radio program I did, where the producer, uh, as I started to read my script, stopped me and said, "David, David, it's boring." You're reading it like a lecture. This is radio. Put a bit of life into it, will you? But I didn't know what that meant. Um, so I, I sort of started to bounce around a little bit. And uh, You didn't know what that meant. So that's... Yeah. That, exactly. That, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And uh, that tried to develop a radio voice. Now, the thing is that there are some subjects which motivate that make it really appealing and without it the talk or whatever it is would just die but the contexts where you notice it going wrong yes are contexts where it's not just an entertaining talk but it's a piece of information of some sort like a piece of news or a weather report uh. or something of or a football result or something of that kind where there is a predictability about the content and therefore there should be a predictability about the sound uh-huh and the guys who do this, and I know this because I, I interviewed one once and we talked about exactly this business of preposition stressing. And he says, you know, the, the reason I do it is to try and make my um, my report sound a bit more interesting. You know, then I, I would point out that but actually by drawing attention to the unimportant word, you're actually detracting from the listener's experience of the important words. Yes. And he yeah. took my point, but I don't think it changed him no, at no. all. I had a conversation about this very topic with the late, uh, great Kristen Linklater. And oh. she and I had both independently noticed the most egregious examples of this, which is which is airline cabin speak. Uh, you know, well, they'll say something like, uh, please wait until the plane has reached the gate and the <laughs> sign... And the captain has turned off the, you know, smoking sign, you know. and Oh, yeah. We, we're not guilty of this thing quite so much in conversation, are we? It's it's in these um, public speaking that come, might come from a script. Is that is that your observation? Um, not necessarily just a script, but certainly I think any public conveying of information, whatever it is, whether it's radio, whether it's just a sermon from a pulpit or whatever it might be, then that's where you do hear these things uh, more than anything else, because you're expecting to hear content and what you get is performance. Now, mm. in everyday conversation, it's the other way around. Yeah, yeah. You turned me on to some completely new ideas, uh, as you always do when I read one of your books. One of them was that we, uh, I've been unconsciously, subconsciously aware of it, of course, but sometimes we do more than use speech intonation, which really isn't singing. It's not sustained notes. So it's not identifiable pitches. But sometimes we do use actual sung notes in speech, in conversation, as in, ta-da! And uh, come and get it. <laughs> I never thought about that. How is it that we will break into recognizably uh, discreet, oh, discreet this pitches? This is a dangerous one. I mean, it only works, of course, if you know the illusion. If uh -huh. you've never seen the film Jaws, and I, I come up to you and go, you're going to look at me as if I'm mad and, and call for the men in white coats. Yeah. Um, so you've got to know the illusion. Now, the thing is that some of these sing-song things come from childhood. So, uh, da, 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 and all that yes. is a long-standing tradition. Heaven knows when it began or why it began or how it began, but 
children for generations now have been catcalling each other in that way. Yeah. The come and get it example is is another another good one. Dinner's on the table, come and get it. That's right. I mean, it's, yeah. an, it, it's an idiomatic cultural melody thing that uh, is as idiomatic and culture-specific as anything else, isn't it? That's right. It's a prosodic idiom. Yeah. Well, thank you for that new insight for me. And the next one that you turned me on to was that, um, and this is, I didn't know even subconsciously, that at nine months, babies babble uh, already sounds English or French in their babbling accent or Chinese or whatever their native language is going to be. Explain how that's possible, that even in the absence of words, we can detect a baby, a nine-month-old baby's future accent. Well, you have to go back to the very beginning here to follow this through. And by the very beginning, I mean six months after conception, three months before you're born. Because the research has shown now very clearly that the fetus at that six-month stage is capable of hearing sound. Uh, you know, experiments have been made on newly born children, uh, play them sounds that they would have heard in the womb versus sounds that they would not have heard in the womb. Yes. And they show a, rea a recognition reaction. Gosh. You know, they get a little excited uh, yes. when they hear the sound that is familiar, their mother's voice in particular. I mean, the, the research goes something like this. The kid is in headphones. This little baby, only a day or two old, has got big headphones on. <laughs> it looks really weird. And you put some sound through that. You put sound of a um, of, of some something that the kid would never have heard. And the kid just, and oh, and you're monitoring the child's sucking response. That's the, uh -huh. that's the measure. Uh -huh. You can also measure sweat and other things, but sucking response is a thing. Yeah, yeah. So you, you play this noise and the child's going yum, 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 and basically pays no attention to it. You play another sound like, uh, say, uh, you know, a male voice from the radio or something, and the child goes yum, 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 and ignores it. Yes. Play the mother's voice to it, and the baby goes yum, 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 yum. There's a little pause. And you can, as it were, hear the baby's brain going, I know that voice. I know, I'm sure I, I've heard that before somewhere and gets a bit excited. And mm -hmm. that's the kind of evidence that people use to show that there has been some pre-birth um, auditory perception. Right. When you look at all the infant perception studies that have been done now, it turns out that of all the features of language that the kid is most likely to recognize, it's going to be intonation. And a few other things as well. Uh, but intonation is one of the primary things that the kid pays attention to. So therefore, you see, it's not surprising that after the child gets through the gurgling, babbling stage and starts to really try to do something in language, won't be surprising that the first thing they have a go at is going to be the intonation patterns. And those intonation so, patterns are recognisable as their future accent. Yeah, it's pretty basic, of course. I mean, I've got tape recordings here of a French child, an English child, and a Chinese child. And at around nine, ten months of age, you hear it partly in the intonation, partly in the rhythm. That's an, yes. I forgot to mention that. That's another important it's point. Stress, stress timed or syllable timed rhythm. Exactly right? that. Exactly that. So your English child, instead of just going like they've been doing before, 
suddenly starts saying things like, that's stress times, of course. Very stress time. And your French child is starting to go, and things like that. And you hear a bit of syllable timing coming in. And your Chinese child is going up and down, up and down like a yo-yo. Oh, that's amazing. Staying with intonation, you say somewhere that, um, and this surprised me, uh, and I think most people would would pause here. You say, uh, quote, intonation is the primary organizational principle underlying spoken discourse. Intonation is the primary organizational yeah. principle underlying spoken discourse. I was, I had to sit and think about that. Talk about that for a moment. Well, it's another thing that came out of the studies of conversational speech that began in the survey that I was telling you about. When you actually break speech up into units of intonation and rhythm, how long are those units going to be? Mm -hmm. So you and I are talking here, and if somebody transcribed what we were saying, then every now and again, if I now speak rather artificially... Uh, there'd be a little pause of some sort and there'd be an intonation pattern and away we go like this and on it goes and on it goes and on it goes. Now that's an artificial example, but when you actually do it for real in natural speech, same kinds of things turn up. So the question is, how long are those chunks? And what you find is that um, they're not a fixed length, of course, for all sorts of reasons, but, but there is a kind of nucleus of of similarity. Most are going to be four or five words long, maybe six or seven sometimes. Mm -hmm. And you, you actually look at the way the intonation is organizing that kind of structure. And you realize that, in fact, the units that we use to communicate with each other are all using the same basic set of tunes, as the intonation experts say, you know, rising tune and falling tune and level tune and all of this. And the rhythms are going to be there to a certain degree. And we're not going to, apart from in very exceptional circumstances, break that pattern. <laughs> now, of course, I can break that pattern if I want to by saying something like this over some period of time, get very excited about it before coming to the end of what I want to say. Now, that yes. does happen, of course. Yes. But that's not the norm. And that's a, a deviation from the norm. Yes. So you have to conclude that the way in which we communicate with each other is basically down to the way we chunk our speech. That's a technical term, isn't it? <laughs> the chunk, yes, it is. It's a psycholinguistic term, which uh, uh, is used in all sorts of ways. But I'm using it here to refer to the way in which we break up speech into intelligible units. And that, by the way, that's important, intelligible units. These units are units of meaning. Yes. They're not just units of sound. Take what I've just said. These are units of meaning, end of that first point. They're not just units of sound, end of the second point. Yeah. And end of the second point. That's how it goes. We are introducing these units of meaning, and people process this chunk at a time. People think we speak in sentences. We do not, uh, except on very formal occasions when we're reading from a script and so on. We yeah. speak in chunks. Part of my job with actors is to turn the, the rhythm of written language into the rhythm of spoken language, of course. 
Yes, indeed, uh, to make the speech sound as natural as, as possible. And that means sort of killing the punctuation, which is a grammatical device, right? And, and really doesn't tell us how, how to chunk the, the units together. There's no, no relationship at all, really, in any systematic way. Uh, I mean, the, the test of this is if you take any piece of conversation that has been spontaneously recorded and try and write it down and punctuate it, and you find immediately that you can't. You just don't know where the commas are going to go or the, where the full stops even are, are going to go or whether that should be a colon rather than a semicolon. There's a little test I do when I'm, when I well, I don't do it anymore, but I used to. I would transcribe a piece of conversation without any punctuation marks in whatsoever. Yeah. Give it out to the class and say, punctuate it. No two people punctuate it in the same way, mm. ever. And these and were people because, who are, these were people who knew the the uh, oh yeah yeah the, they, I mean, the, rule, the rules score. of punctuation yeah yeah and they knew they knew what the purpose of the experiment was I just said no punctuate it and let's see what happens don't look at each other's paper and because of the way in which the pauses worked and the intonation went up in a certain place and down in another place and all the rest of it uh, some people tried to find a sentence there and couldn't and so they thought what shall I do what shall I do so some put in a colon and some put in a semicolon and yeah. some just yeah. put in a pile of dashes you know it's it's amazing amazing that we understand each other at all but yeah. we do and that's because we chunk in these smaller units yes you said something very interesting in a previous podcast so I won't revisit that but the history of punctuation and and how at some particular times in history the there was an attempt to give these uh, temporal meanings, you know, pause a certain length of time for a period and something for a comma and something for a semicolon. Yeah. One doesn't have to go to the punctuation in order to demonstrate the the brain's function here, the, the way that these chunks map into the way that our brain works with language. Have I ever in previous podcasts done the memory task, Paul, with you? Well, if, if that's a memory test, I'm going to it. So go, let's go there. Let, let's do it now. The aim of the exercise is to show at what point the brain finds it difficult to remember what's just been said. And so the simplest exercise is to take a, uh, a digit and ask you to repeat it. So let's do it now. I okay, want, okay. I'm going to say something and I want you to repeat it exactly as I say it. And I want you to notice the point at which it gets difficult. Ready? Ready. Three. Three. Six, two. Six, two. One, four, six. One, four, six. Three, two, four. Three, two, four. Eight, one, nine, three, two. Eight, one, nine, three, two. Nine four three two six one. That's where it gets difficult. <laughs> it gets difficult after five, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, five units. Now let's do it again, but with a rather more difficult phonology. Dissyllables this time. Are you ready? Okay. Sixteen. Sixteen. Fifteen. Eighteen. Fifteen. Eighteen. Nineteen. Thirteen. Seventeen. Nineteen. Thirteen. Seventeen. 18, 14, 13, 16. 18, 14, 13, 16. And already it's starting to get a bit harder, isn't it? And that's yes. after only four. Yes. So uh, now, And each of those is two syllables, of course. And each of those is two syllables. Now imagine with longer words how the brain would sort of soak up that 
those longer words, it would be more difficult. But here's the trick now. Would you like to do 20 syllables, 20 digits without any trouble at all? I, I would love to have that ability, of course. Yeah, well, here we go. Are you ready? <laughs> okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, four. Are you able to do that? <laughs> I think I can do that. Why? Because you've learned the grammar. Yes. That's one thing. You've learned the grammar of counting. And here's the clincher for what you were asking me before. What about this? My telephone number, 8634-9279. Can you do that? Yeah. I'm very bad at numbers. I, give me a line of Shakespeare and I'll repeat it back to you. I've, I've got a phenomenal memory for long pieces of text. but Still, you could do it. I bet you could. 8634-9279. 8364-9271. Yeah, but I mean, you know, on the whole, you're doing eight numbers there without as much difficulty as you had doing five numbers before. Yes. And the reason is that the intonation is chunking the telephone number into manageable units. Four plus four, or whatever, three yes. plus three, eight, yes. two, six, nine, two, five. Yes. And that's much easier. And that's what shows that... Intonation is such an important controlling mechanism for speech. That's great. That's a tremendous insight. Moving on, uh, the chapter that dealt with changes in the stress or accent pattern of words over time. I was fascinated by that and uh, had no idea that balcony was pronounced balcony. Balcony, yes. In England in 18, as recently as 1855. I didn't know that. Uh, that was on page 52 of the book, or at least on my Kindle edition of it. Do you have some other surprising examples of stress pattern shifting? Well, there are just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. When you go back in time, stress shifts. That's what it does. It always has, right from the very beginning. And for people who wrote about stress in earlier centuries, you can see the way stress goes backwards and forwards and in and out of a word now, you know, we've done a lot on Shakespeare together. And one of the things we know as soon as you start doing a Shakespeare text is that often the the emphasis in a particular word is going to vary from what it is in, in modern English. Yes. Um, and, you know, the stress instead of on the first syllable is going to be on the second or on the third or whatever it might be. This pattern, which began so early, is continuing today. You mentioned Balcony. Well, one that came up not soon after that was... Now, here, of course, we've got British and American differences coming into play. So, yes. you know, controversy versus controversy yes. for British English. And, you know, which do you go for? And people argue about this and get upset about one rather than the other and so on. Is it going to be research that we're doing or is it research that we're doing? Yes. And, you know, dozens of other examples. And American English has gone in a different way from British English here. But nonetheless, in both varieties, you do still get this stress variation. So it's, it's wonderful. And, and I didn't realize how important it was to notice that stress patterns vary in the same speaker, you know, in the same sentence, depending on the context of the word. Like you, your, your example in the book was, um, we might say, I've got an afternoon. I've got an afternoon meeting. I've got an afternoon meeting. Yeah. Uh, stressing in, after. In the, in the afternoon. The, when is your afternoon? When is your afternoon meeting? Well, it's in the afternoon. I'm going to be paying much more attention to those wonderful little shifts. 
Yes, phonologists uh, since uh, Chomsky's time have been particularly interested in this, talking about things like, how does it go? The, the, is it the 16 men rule? Uh, I can't remember exactly the terminology, I'm getting old. Uh, but, you know, there are 16 men in the room. How old are you? I'm 16. Uh, or there were 16 there. Yes. 16 men were 16. That's been a focus of a lot of research in, in recent years. And it is indeed a, a neglected topic. People often don't realize that we have this uh, stress variation absolutely normally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have a lovely little bit, I think, in the same chapter about uh, comparing British and American English. And you gave us examples like um, American weekend, ballet, address, uh, oh, yeah. versus weekend, ballet, address. In these two-syllable words that uh, vary from America to England, American seems to favor the trochaic, the dum-dum, the jaws mm. rhythm, while British seems to favor the iambic, da dum is that your observation as well? Yeah, I, I think I'd agree. I'd agree with that. So I've never. I have to say, I've never sort of systematically looked through all the examples to sort of test it. I've made lists of thirty and forty words that vary. So far, I'm still convinced that Americans likes the trochaic pattern. Da da. It must be something to do with the American psyche, don't you think? Yeah, mm. versus the British one. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we could make far-reaching uh, conclusions. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because that's what people—that's what people do. You see, uh, I mean, one of the big myths about um, this whole business of intonation and and melody and tone of voice and everything is to try and explain differences in regional variation and social variation in relation to factors that probably have, have nothing to do with it at all. There is a very strong popular belief that there will be something in the American way of life that explains what you've just said, and or yes. the British way of life that explains it. I'm thinking of things you see like, do you remember stories that used to be around and, and are still, I still hear them, that there are Accents of English, which are very rising in tone, you know, like 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 in Welsh, uh, speaking like this all the mm -hmm. time, you know, with, with a rising tone. Why is that? Because there are a lot of mountains in Wales, you see, <laughs> and so people are always looking up and climbing them, and therefore the pitch will go up. You know that sort of thing. Or to take another example, in Liverpool, where I used to live for many years, uh, there is a back. Vila fricative, replacing plosive. So, so I might say, you know, I'm going back. I'm going back with a ch rather yeah. than a k. Yeah. Why is that? The popular view would be, well, it's because there are a lot of fogs in Liverpool, you see, and it causes a lot of Qatar. And that's why the Liverpudlians speak in that way. <laughs> and so on. And, and these ideas are... Even when they're not ill. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. And, and I mean, the, the way you counter that, of course, is to show that precisely the same effects occur in places, for example, where there are no mountains and yet the voice still goes up or where there are no fogs. Yes. And I do. I do have some very, very good colleagues in the dialect coaching business who who will certainly offer that kind of thing, maybe in the spirit of an analogy or an image or, or, or but but uh, some go further and you know explain these differences in accents by region you know on the topography as you say and uh, the weather it's it's a little bit oh the weather yes that that comes up 
And you have a, another wonderful chapter on historical linguistics. I mean, you are the preeminent historical linguist. And you and I have collaborated on more than one Shakespeare play using the original pronunciation. And uh, my first, very first podcast was on that topic. Yeah. Fascinating detective work. Uh, so one of the final chapters of Sounds Appealing is on Shakespeare's original pronunciation. Huge field. Obviously can't cover it as it deserves. So let me just close the show by my asking you to tell us the story of, I think the guy's name is Orm, the 12th century spelling reformer, maybe the first spelling reformer? Yes, Orm, uh, O-R-M, or often O-double-R-M, suggesting, you know, an Orm or something like that. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Yes, he wrote in the 12th century, and the reason why he has a place in any history of linguistics, but certainly in a history of English pronunciation, is because he tried for the first time to write down the most critical issue in English phonology, which is the difference between short vowels and long vowels. And this is so important because it governs so many sound changes over the centuries in Anglo-Saxon times right through to the present day. If a vowel is short and a vowel is long, it affects speech in all sorts of ways. And he sensed this in the 12th century, for heaven's sake, and uh, thought, I'm going to have to write my texts in such a way that people will be able to read them and get the short vowel right and the long vowel right. Now, let's just be clear that this is the difference between sitting and sighting, for instance. So S-I-T-T-I-N-G and S-I-T-I-N-G. So a double consonant shows that the vowel preceding it is short and a single consonant suggests that the vowel is going to be long. Now, he's the first one to try and write that down into his texts. Mm -hmm. And so you will get double consonants after any short vowel. Now, this is invaluable because whereas with content words like sitting and citing, you, you know, it all makes sort of sense. He did it absolutely ruthlessly. So even a word like and, A-N-D, short vowel, so he spells it A-N-N-D. And this looks really weird, but it's invaluable information showing us how short vowels have developed at that particular point in English. So that was and part of the detective work that you were able to employ in predicting the historical sounds, right? Well, exactly right. In those days, there was no standardized spelling system at all. People uh, spelt as they spoke, and you see regional dialect differences coming in all over the place in the different texts over the medieval period. And so that's how we work out how Chaucer spoke, or at least how his texts sounded. Uh, notice when one says how Chaucer spoke, what one means is the, the sound system that Chaucer used. Yes. We have no way of knowing exactly what Chaucer's voice quality was or no, which particular no. regional accent he had. But we can work out the sound system he had and the same point applies to Shakespeare. Thank God for the um, uh, inconsistent spelling. It's such a such a clue to the previous oh, century. Oh, absolutely. Contradictory sometimes. I mean, it's, it is detective work. You, you collect a whole pile of spellings for a particular sound, and you see that 99 of them go one way and one goes the other way, and it is very annoying. Um, and <laughs> you have to try and work out why is the exception there? And that's often because there is a regional variation or sometimes you just don't know. But you go for the majority all the time. That's mm -hmm. why I never say that OP, original pronunciation, is 
100% correct. It can never be that. It's always sort of, you know, 90% or so authentic or plausible is the word I like to use. Yes. So that sitting and citing the single or double consonant, are we still thanking Mr. Orm for that? I would. uh, Indeed, I would. Um, It, of course, became... It changed. I mean, nobody actually spells and with a double N anymore, nor did they after Orm. Orm is very idiosyncratic, ruthless, I said, in his interpretation of the rule. So things simplified in due course, and uh, uh, common grammatical words like and and of and the, you know, all all the short vowels, as it were, uh, the vast majority of them um, didn't bother with any separate identification mm. but for those crucial pairs of words like sitting and citing and all the others then then it's it's still the most important rule of all we should all remember mr orm sounds appealing it's a wonderful book david i highly recommend it to all you out there listening to us well thank you very much paul it was a thanks joy for joining me thanks for joining me good to see you again and thanks to you for joining me paul meyer and my guest David Crystal. To learn more about him, and for that free extra content related to this episode, go to paulmeyer.com, choose In a Manner of Speaking from the Other Services tab on the menu bar, and click on episode number 56. Don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at Dialect Paul. Oh yes, I love to hear from listeners. Did I mention that? Email me at paul at paulmeyer.com. My guest next month is Professor Jenny Safran, a specialist in language acquisition at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. She will help us understand better the miracle of how babies learn to talk without any kind of instruction. Next time on In a Manner of Speaking.